Okay, we're here we go. So thank you all for um, joining me here. We have our Saturday ESO Panajat class. And uh, June 27th, 2020. So today we're going to start with ESO Panishad verse number two, which is Kurvan Eveha Karmani, Jijivishek Chatang Samaha, Evang Twayi Nanyateatosti, Nakarma Lipyate Nare. So we'll read Prabhupada's translations and then we'll dive into the Sanskrit. One may aspire to live for hundreds of years if he continuously goes on working in that way for that sort of work will not bind him to the law of karma. There is no alternative to this way for man. So uh, let's look at the verse. First line, kurvan, which means acting, doing, living one's life, kurvan eva, thus, iha, in this world, karmani. So, thus performing actions in this world. That's the first line, thus performing actions in this world. And so, thus, eva here means thus, <clears throat> of course, refers back to the first verse. Isha vasya midang sarvam. That uh, this entire universe belongs to the Lord, isha, isha. Isha Vasimidang Sarvam Jatkinchit Jagatyang Jagat Jatkincha Jagatyang Jagat or Jatkinchit, same thing. Um, whatever there may be in the universe, it belongs to the Lord. And Tena, Tyaktena Bhunjita, one should enjoy, one should consume uh, those things which have been set aside. As Prabhupada says, as our quota. Tena tyaktena vunjita magradhakasyasvidhana. And do not take the property of anyone else. So this spirit, you live your life uh, for Krishna. Seeing that I belong to Krishna, everything belongs to Krishna. I do not covet, I don't grasp anyone else's property. I respect everyone else. This is basically what, um, you know, the, the two famous Old Testament verses that Jesus quoted as uh, really uh, epitomizing, giving the essence of the whole New Testament, Old Testament, which are love your neighbor as yourself and love God with all your heart. So live your whole life with this understanding that Everything, the entire universe belongs to Krishna. You are on the property of God at every moment. You are walking on the property of God. You are eating property of God. You have a body which is the property of God. Everything belongs to him. And uh, do not abuse or offend or steal from any other living being. Treat everyone with respect. And and dedicate your life to God. So then Isopanishad verse 2 says, Kurvan Eveha Karmani. So performing your actions in this world, in that spirit of the first verse, Jijivichek Chetang Samaha, one may aspire to live for 100 years. Probably actually says hundreds of years in the, in the word by word. He says 100, then he expands it. But um, Shatam, of course, is 100. That's where we get the word, uh, well, century, 100 years, century, or the uh, percent. Percent means cent, means per hundred. So cent is shut, such shatam. So 10% is 10 per hundred, 10%. So that's shatam in Sanskrit. And so here we have shatam samaha, 100 years. And the word jijivichek, <coughs> which Prabhupada translates it, one should desire to live, which is a 
to literal translation. This is the desiderative form of the verb jeev, to live. And jeev, isha, means uh, to desire to live. So one, and anyway, one may desire, one can desire in this tense of the verb. One can desire to live 100 years. Also, 100 years is not entirely symbolic, but it is sort of a a, uh, a way of saying a very good life. Like, for example, when at marriages or different things, a common blessing that's offered to people is that uh, may they live uh, jiva shatam for 100 autumns, in Spanish, otoños, uh, 100 autumns. Uh, may you live 100 autumns. So it doesn't mean the person will live exactly 100 years, but it it's sort of a nice way in Sanskrit of saying, uh, may you have a long life. May you have a long and good life. So here we have, may you have a long and good life. Literally, one can aspire or desire to live 100 years. And evam, in this way, if you have all this in place, then toi nan yateyatosti. Uh, so it means thus, toyi for you, uh, na, not, anyata, otherwise, asti, there is, and then anyateto means anyata, ita, ha, itas, which becomes ito. Anyway, that means apart from this, literally, not, uh, anyateto, anyatetaha means. Otherwise from this, apart from this, otherwise from this, uh, there is uh, there is nothing for you. You can't do it otherwise. You can't have that great life otherwise from this. Because living in this way, uh, literally karma... Uh, does not attach itself to you or to a to a human being. Uh, lipiate, the verb is lip, of course, is the passive of the verb lip. So it literally means that in, if you live in this way, and this is the only way to do it, karma will not attach itself to you. You become, so to speak, a Teflon soul that uh, if you are faithfully engaged in Krishna service, acting properly, then whatever you're doing, karma cannot stick to you. Because normally, just the way the world is created, when you do something in this world, it produces a reaction. But it's almost saying here that when you act in this world, there is a reaction, just like if you, uh, let's say you just walk down the street, you're exerting pressure on the street, people are seeing you, you're in many ways, interacting with the environment. So just as whatever we do physically in the world, whatever action we perform, it acts upon the physical world, which then acts upon us. So it, almost in an analogous sense, karma, just as any physical action in this world, just automatically, the way the world is, the way it's created, any physical action produces a reaction. So there is a law of karma, which is there that anything you do sort of triggers a karmic reaction. But if you are living for Krishna, for God, those reactions do not attach themselves to you. They just sort of bounce off you and therefore you are karma free. That's the idea here. So it's interesting that um, I was just discussing with the devotee a little earlier today that um, it's often said it's a cliche in ISKCON that we are now a congregational movement, that we're not just an ashram movement, we're not a, a, a primarily a monastic movement, we're a we are a congregational movement. And the good part about that is we reach a lot more people and ISKCON becomes user-friendly to so many more people. The other side of it is 
that for all of our immaturity, you could say back in the good old days, uh, when we all lived in ashrams, but it, it was very strictly Krishna conscious, at least for those who took the program seriously. So the flip side, the other side of living out in the world, which most of us do, I mean, I don't live in a Hare Krishna temple whose address is in Back to Godhead magazine. I, you know, certainly practicing bhakti yoga, but not living in an official Iskand temple. And so the, it's also a challenge, of course, if we're serious in our spiritual life, then we will meet that challenge and have a very happy, productive life of devotional service. But it is easy to fall into material ways of thinking. We can see that now with all this political agitation, there's a mountain of facts about it, which I'm not going to go into here. What you get in the press is just, anyway, I'm talking about real facts coming from real sources, agencies, and science and everything, but I won't go into that. So it's easy to be dragged into all these political things. It's, it's not that we don't care about the world. We do care. We just know that we have the real solution. If you're a doctor and there's an epidemic, which there is, but let's say you're a doctor and, and you have the real medicine. Your medicine actually works, but in the meantime, people have gone crazy and they're trying by many authorized uh, methods unauthorized methods, you know, it's not really science, it's just crazy stuff, trying to treat everyone, it's making things worse. And you're a doctor, you have real medicine. That's our position. We should get, not get sucked into mundane thinking, bodily concept of life. We care about the world. We care about individuals. We care about justice. But we have the real way to bring about justice in the world. It's called Krishna consciousness. And history shows us very clearly. History could not show more clearly than it does that all these mundane sort of hate-based methods of trying to fix the world, they just create new problems. They don't really fix the world. Krishna consciousness really fixes the world when it's done properly. And so we should not get seduced we should, because it's passion. I mean, after all, why do people become lusty? Why do they want to enjoy anything? Why do devotees indulge in all kinds of sense gratification? Uh, why? Because it's the mode of passion acting upon us. Passion makes us want to enjoy this world. And the same way, there is a real, when you get all this very passionate, hateful, political rhetoric which demonizes half the world and you know half the world's okay it's it's a real heavy sense gratification because we come to this world to load it lord it over and when we become self-righteous and i see frankly personally i care about justice i want justice but i see a lot more self-righteousness than righteousness that's a whole topic uh but i won't go into it now uh self-righteous is a different idea it means being it means using so-called righteousness to lord it over other people um so the definition of the dictionary is having or characterized by a certainty especially an unfounded one that one is totally correct or morally superior so you want to lord it over one of the ways you lord it over have more money than other people uh, be stronger, better looking than other people, There's, you know, be smarter than other people. There's many ways to lord it over. But one of the most seductive, you know, self-gratifying ways is think that you're morally superior. I'm a better person than you because I care about this or that or because. So the temptation for sense gratification uh, is just it's irresistible for a lot of people, for a lot of devotees. It's an irresistible temptation to engage in materialistic sense gratification by demonizing half the planet practically and uh, thinking you're better than all those people, as opposed to, as opposed to in a Krishna conscious, intelligent, enlightened way, pursuing justice in the world which we should do. Krishna himself says in Bhagavad Gita, 
that whenever there is a collapse of justice, the word dharma means justice, by the way. It doesn't, it doesn't mean like a religious institution. It means, uh, it means justice, following the laws of God, which are designed to preserve justice in the world. So Krishna says, yada yada hi bhavati bharata. When there is a glani, when there is a weakening, a collapse of dharma, and abhi utanam, this sort of uprising of um, injustice, a dharma, then Krishna says, I come. So Krishna cares about justice. We care about justice, but we're not fools. And we know that history shows very clearly that all these uh, self-gratifying, self-righteous, hatred, uh, hateful uh, bodily concept methods of fixing the world don't work. You don't. If you don't believe that, read history. So um, we are pursuing justice. We are pursuing the greatest happiness for society in the correct way, in the efficient way, in the scientific way, which is Krishna consciousness. And that's explained here in these verses of Isopanishad. We are teaching people to leave in the to live in the spirit of Isha Vasyam. So um if there are any questions on these points, this will not be a long class unless I lose myself in the questions. Uh Let's see. Uh, okay, here's some questions just came in. What is the practical benefit of not having a karmic reaction? That's a good question. Uh, the practical benefit is, number one, you get your eternal life and you get perfect happiness and perfect knowledge. So that's a deal. It seems like even in this lifetime, we don't accrue karma even if in this lifetime we don't accrue, accumulate, sorry, we don't accumulate karma, we still have the countless karmic reactions to contend with, question mark? Actually, no. Uh, if we uh, live a life of very sincere, very devoted Krishna consciousness, devoted to Krishna, we will be very happy almost all the time. That's my personal experience. I'm not bragging that I'm happy, but it, it just works. That's my point, it just works. So uh, what's the practical benefit? There's every conceivable benefit, real benefit. The, uh, is, Iso, is the Iso according to Western standards, I guess it's supposed to be, a theological book rather than philosophical? Um, someone asked this the other day, I can't remember what language we were in. But um, try to do this very briefly. Um, oh, it was in Spanish. So if you don't speak Spanish, you probably didn't hear that. In fact, if you don't speak Spanish, you definitely didn't hear that and understand it. Um, every system of knowledge to begin, to proceed, every system of knowledge has to have something which is given. And so to give one example, geometry. Sorry for all the, that dinging. I don't know how to stop that. I know, I think I do know how to stop that dinging. That people are sending me uh, messages instead of listening to these Upanishads. So um, in geometry, if you remember back to your ecstatic days in school, that something's given, like given a triangle with two equal sides, for example. And then, and one angle is this, so what are, how many degrees are on the other angles? That's just like a typical geometry problem. So something has to be given. If, if you sit down to a geometry thing and it just says given nothing, you're not gonna do geometry. You need something given. Just like, as I've explained a million times, slight exaggeration, um, to do empirical science. You have to accept as a self-evident fact, several things. You have to accept, you can't prove empirically because it would be circular reasoning. 
you have to prove you have to accept as self-evident that there's a real world outside your mind you have to accept although you can't necessarily prove that um, the laws of nature behave in a uniform fashion throughout the universe so that if light is coming to your telescope let's say light that is well many light years away a million like really far away millions and millions and billions of miles away and then you're interpreting that light like what does it tell us about its source because under different atmospheric conditions uh, light behaves differently uh, a light when it passes through a gas for example or passes through the atmosphere it uh it affects the particular wavelengths that get through and uh, creates different colors. Like for example, on a cloudy day, things are literally different colors. And then if the sun comes out, the colors change. And so what that means is that if you knew all this and you looked at a picture, let's say of a farm and you saw exactly what color things were, you could calculate what the atmosphere was like. And so similarly, when light passes through gas, certain wavelengths get through certain wavelengths don't get through and so therefore you can you can you can discover the medium what light is coming through it's just like for example let's say someone is driving to my house and when they get there uh there's snow on the top of their car and it's not snowing where i am i say well you must have come from the mountains or something because it's snowing in the mountains. So when you see what arrives, what comes to your senses and what state it's in and what the original form of, I know, for example, the cars aren't generally sold in this country with snow on the top. So if you have snow on the top of your car, then uh, it didn't come from the factory. So in that way, we see light coming through the universe and we see you know, what wavelengths come through and all that. And then we can, well, we cannot, we, I'm being generous, but scientists can calculate what that light came through. And then there's other ways of calculating how, how far away the light is. And there's ways to calculate that. Obviously, I'm not an astronomer, but that's what they do. They analyze light. So, but they're assuming that the laws of nature <laughs> operate the same everywhere. What if, for example, light is coming from a distant galaxy and halfway through, let's say there's a big teddy bear up in the sky, like some big living teddy bear. And as light passes through, uh, comes into our galaxy, that big living teddy bear grabs the light, changes it, and then sends it on to Earth. Very unlikely, but still, it's an example. So if you are an astronomer reading light that's coming from some far side of the galaxy or some other galaxy, you assume that the laws of nature that you use to make your calculations, those laws of nature operate the same all over the universe because if they don't, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. So you have to assume that you can't exactly i mean you can do things that seem to prove it or that sort of make it very likely but ultimately what if for example what if for example uh there is a god who has an illusory power called maya and is making you see things different than the way they really are and what if that those illusions being created are systematic. In other words, they're not random, they're not all different every time, but they're systematic illusions that operate according to predictable laws. So you could still have a law-based science, You could everything could mathematically work out, you could just be wrong about it. And that's happened many times in the history of science. So we have to make all kinds of assumptions to do science. And so getting back to this question now, uh, when you do philosophy, uh, now him getting to the point, when you do philosophy, uh, philosophy is done in communities, you know, groups of people. There are lone ranger philosophers, but generally academic or scholarly philosophy is done 
in scholarly communities. Like for example, let's say all the recognized philosophy departments and recognized universities. And there are thousands of philosophy professors who, uh, and then they produce journals and they have conferences and they talk to each other and they critique each other's theories. So it's a community. So Western philosophy, which now goes on everywhere, even in India, but Western type philosophy goes on within academic communities or scholarly communities. And so whenever a community is engaged in conversation, any community, whether it's just some small town in Nebraska or whether it's, let's say, in a meeting of the American Philosophy Association, you know, the scholars, academic philosophers in the United States, whatever community it is, it can be a Boy Scout meeting, it can be a Hare Krishna, I don't know, you know, Namahatta gathering or something. Any Anytime people gather as a community and talk to each other, they assume certain things to be true. And those things which everybody assumes to be true, you don't have to prove. You don't argue about it because everyone already believes it. For example, let's say I'm giving a Bhagavatam class in a Hare Krishna temple, assuming they will reopen. Let's say, um, now, if I'm giving a class in a normal ISKCON temple, it's not a Krishna way. I mean, it's just a temple. And I say, Krishna is the Supreme Personality of Godhead. People, devotees aren't going to jump up and say, well, how do you know? And how can you prove that? And that's just your opinion. Unless, you know, you've invited them to, you know, throw questions at you. But normally, if, if you're giving a sermon in a Christian church and you talk about the blood of Jesus or something, people don't stand up and start arguing with you. In fact, if you look at, let's say, Christian theology, Christian theologians, they agree on many things of Christian doctrine, such as the saving grace of Jesus. And, and, and in many cases, they, anyway, the Trinity, I won't comment on that. They assume certain things to be true, and then on the basis of that, they speculate, they philosophize. Same thing in science communities. They accept certain things to be true. Like, for example, uh, they take certain data as true, and then they may, there are areas of physical science which are extremely speculative, such as string theory, multiple universes, or all kinds of things. They're just speculating, but they're speculating on the basis of what people commonly agree on as true. So now, there certainly have been many great philosophers in India and the West getting to this question. However, the difference is not only between, let's say, Indian philosophy and Western philosophy, but certainly between different periods of Western philosophy. Different periods of Western philosophy is they make different assumptions. They have different, a different type of consensus where, okay, we all agree on that, don't bother arguing about it. For example, if you were a professor in a, the, in, in, at Oxford or Cambridge or the University of Paris, the Sorbonne, or any of the great universities of Europe, and you were a distinguished, let's say, philosophy professor, uh, maybe in the late Middle Ages, where you get some you know, very impressive intellectual activity, scholasticism, then they are philosophizing, speculating based on what everyone already agrees to, namely the doctrine, the basic theology of the Catholic Church. And so it's interesting, by the 1600s, uh, people still, philosophers still say they're Christian because you can be burned at the stake which could ruin your whole day. So you get someone like Descartes and his meditations where he says, what if I doubt everything? What if I doubt everything that I think I know? What if I imagine I could be 
just a brain in, in, in a laboratory of some evil genius, as he puts it. And so even my assumption that there's a world outside my mind, what if I doubt that? What if I doubt everything? And certainly all the so-called truths of religion. Now, what's interesting here, he eventually, then he, he concludes, cogito ergo sum, I'm thinking, therefore I must exist. So I cannot doubt that I exist and that I'm consciously existing. And from there, he, he rebuilds basically Christian truth. But what's interesting is that in, in the introduction to this book, what he wrote in the introduction, because the book had to be approved by a body of censors. It's just like if you want to produce a BBT book and in, the, in, a, in a BBT book, you write that Krishna may or may not be God, uh, they're not going to publish it. They're not going to publish your book. Or if you say some people are not their bodies and some people are their material bodies, the BBT won't publish it. And even your membership in ISKCON uh, may be jeopardized. Now, if you go back in early European history, uh, just like ISKCON has, the GBC has the power to say that someone can or cannot be an ISKCON, but back then, to say that, okay, you can be part of the Catholic Church also meant you can live. Because if you were outside the church, I mean, you may, your right just to breathe, your right to exist could be revoked. In other words, you could be killed. And generally, if you look at that Christian history, they thought it's so bad to blaspheme or do stuff against the church that you shouldn't just kill people in some quick, relatively easy way because no, you got to figure out the most painful, long drawn out ways for people to die. Of course, anyway, great history. So, but that's what I'm, so what Descartes does is because he doesn't want to be burned at the stake. He goes into this whole discussion of how he, because he has to be approved and, and the people that have to approve his book, the censors are the theology faculty or, or the professors of the Sorbonne in Paris, this you know great ancient university. So he tells them, look, look, you guys, you know, bishops and priests and everything, I know and you know, we know that everything the church says is obviously true. And we know that only fools could doubt what the church says what you guys say, only a fool could doubt it. But alas, there are many fools in the world. There are fools in the world who do doubt what the church says. This is especially true at the time of Descartes because you had, you know, for over a century, you have the Protestant Reformation. There's a lot of people in Europe who reject the Catholic church, even though they're still Christians. And then, you know, philosophers, scientists who are not so sure about Christianity. And so, he says, we know it's true, but there are fools in the world. And so I'm trying to be merciful to the fools who don't know that everything you guys teach in the church is wonderful and perfect and true. So did Descartes really believe that? I don't know. I have to study his life more. I know he definitely didn't want to be burned at the stake. We do know that. So, but the point I'm making here is that in India, People that did philosophy all agreed on certain things. Almost all of them, you could say, except maybe the Buddhists or the Jains, but all the, but in the, at least in the Indian or Vedic philosophical community, they all accepted Shastra. Like take, for example, the great debates in Vedanta Sutra, Brahma Sutra, Ramanuja, Shankara, Madhva. Everyone accepts this is Shastra and therefore it's true, but what does it mean? Or uh, even, let's say, in debates with Buddhists, a lot of times they would say, okay, we're not the body, but what are we? So in a Western philosophical context, you couldn't assume that we're not the body. You couldn't assume that there is a paradise waiting for you if you belong, if you're a good Buddhist or if you're a good something else. But... In ancient India, you could assume that. So my point is, if certain things are true, and if certain philosophers know that these things are true, 
they don't have to waste their time arguing about it. So when you when when modern Western philosophy looks at Indian philosophy, they say, well, it's theology. I mean, it's not religion. The, I mean, all they could say is it's theology. It's not religion. <clears throat> it's not it's not rituals. It's not ritual religion. It's just theology. But if the assumptions of these ancient Indian philosophers are true, and they, and they knew these assumptions are true, then in fact, they are just doing philosophy. But they, their starting point is from, the starting point is, this, is, is the point at which, it's, let's say, they already accept all the things that everybody knows to be true. So that's the only difference really between Western and Eastern philosophy. They both have very powerful systems of logic. They're both very rigorous. They both have smart people. They just have different assumptions. What can we all agree on is true. And so if in India, their assumptions were correct and they were assuming truths about the world that are true, then it's actually more advanced philosophy. So that's how I explain that, sort of a long explanation, but uh, uh, okay, more questions. Uh, let's see. How can we be sure that we are looking justice, looking at justice in the right way? How? Well, read Bhagavad Gita. That's a good place to start. We're not our bodies. Every every living being must be shown respect. Every living being should get justice. We should care about every living being and try to give them the greatest happiness. Krishna describes this twice in the Gita as sarva bhuta being dedicated to the well-being of all creatures. How can you bring justice in Krishna's way if you don't take full part in the material ways of the world? I would say the opposite. The opposite, I would say, how can you ever bring justice if you do take full part in the material ways of the world? Just teaching Krishna consciousness seems to be not enough. Well, guess what? What do you think the, the liberal media is trying to do? It's trying to educate us or program. This is how you should think about everything. Of course, they hide all kinds of statistics and they put forward other statistics. Uh, I'm not saying there's no injustice. Of course there is. But if you just read mainstream media, you're going to have very little idea of what's actually going on in the world. So... Um, and I don't mean, you know, it's a big conspiracy. I just mean that there are all kinds of facts and relevant issues that uh, a lot of the media will never talk about. So we live in a democratic age for good or evil. And so if you educate people that will affect their voting patterns. There already are people out there who are not practicing Vaishnavas and they vote and they take part in demonstrations and they do all kinds of things in terms of hiring practices and all kinds of, you know, they're out there in the world. Why not educate those people? If I, if I help to educate those people so they make proper decisions and form a proper, a good society, why am I not taking part? Why can't I take part as a Brahmin? Why do I have to take part as a Shudra? Uh, anyway, I, I have very strong views. I'm not going to mention them here based on facts, not based on my imagination. So, but yeah, yeah, we should, we should, ISKCON is or should be dedicated to bringing real justice to the world. But justice also means for animals. It means you don't slaughter them. There, there's just an ocean of hypocrisy in all this. Just to mention one little fact, uh, Black Lives Matter. Yes, they do. Black lives do matter, and 90%, of the blacks who are criminally killed, criminally killed, 90% are killed by other black people. I'm not, this obviously doesn't justify uh, police brutality. It doesn't justify police murder. It doesn't justify, you know, racist police policies. Of course it doesn't. However, my simple question is, if you call yourself a devotee, do you really care about these people? Do you really care about them? If you really care about them, how could you not care about the way in which 90% of them are being murdered? If their lives matter, 
Don't 90% of the victims matter? Don't the lives of 90% of the victims matter? If they do, how are you? Sure, demonstrating the street against police brutality, sure. But what exact actions are you taking to show compassion on the 90% of murdered black people who are murdered by black people? Just maybe you could send me a note and tell me exactly how you are fighting against that. Or does only the 10% of lives matter and the other 90% don't matter? So in Krishna consciousness, we see everyone as a spirit soul. We absolutely want justice for everyone. Krishna teaches that in the Gita. But we care about people even when, even when caring about those people doesn't give us license in our minds to hate huge numbers of other people. So can you love without hating? Uh, the political left, apparently not. In fact, it's own, and because they only love when they can hate. And I mean, I could go on for hours and hours giving you historical examples. Just tell me what century you want. 21st century, 20th century, name your century. I'll give you hundreds of examples. That there's a lot of people who only love when they can hate. And that's exactly what Krishna says in the Bhagavad Gita. That in the material mode of passion, you only love when you hate. Because these two things go as a pair. You're attached to one group and you hate another group. You're attached to this, you hate that. Now, obviously, what that does is just sets the world spinning so that it solves one problem and creates another huge problem. Because in the act of solving one problem, it's creating all, it's putting out all this toxic hatred in the world and alienate another group that will get their revenge eventually. And so what history shows is, sorry, it doesn't work. Devotees, Krishna consciousness, uh, or other spiritual methods which are relevantly analogous from other traditions. Only when the leaders, the spiritual leaders of the world can love without hating, that we can actually fix this. And that's something we can do. So I'm not going to take full part in a failed strategy. I've been watching this stuff for, you know, in my own life for a very long time. I study history all the time. And I see thousands of years of failure of a particular approach, which is now popular. And so taking full part doesn't mean take full part in what works and take full part in what doesn't work. That's not my approach. Studying history, we see there were groups that suffered a lot of prejudice and injustices, such as with African transatlantic slavery, who the slaves, of course, who were sold by other blacks. And by the way, slavery or near slavery or economic slavery still goes on in many parts of the world, but no one seems to care about that. And land grabbing of indigenous people, yes, that's definitely true. It was evil. And if you look at the history, I don't know if you studied this, if you look at the history of the indigenous people of North America before the Europeans came, they were doing the same thing. They were enslaving other indigenous peoples. There were massacres. Uh, there were genocides. There's all kinds of fun and games going on. So if your moral feeling, if you only care about people who are victims of one group, what about the fact that in Africa today, there's all kinds of horrible things going on. I mean, do you care about that? What about the fact of, I mean, sure, we can focus on a particular issue and, and, and you know, apparently this is the time. I'm not saying you can never focus. You can never focus and deal with one particular problem. Of course we can do that, but don't lose your head. If you want to com combat evil, do you want to combat? What I find very interesting is the, the hypocrites, and I think they are hypocrites, and I think someone's just got to say it. The hypocrites, they hypocritically hold white people to a higher moral standard so that if non-white people, let's say like in the Islamic world, if millions and millions and millions of women are enslaved, 
you won't find the American feminist movement talking about that very much. They don't talk about that very much. Enslaving women, genital mutilation, uh, uh, you know, killing your own daughter, murdering your own daughter because she married this guy and you wanted her to marry that guy. So if your daughter doesn't marry the person you wanted to marry, you kill her. What's interesting is that the Western feminist movement doesn't talk a lot about those things, but, 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 but it, you know, it, in America, if people just, you know, and they don't even talk about sexism among non-white peoples because there are non-white groups in America and white groups. I'm not saying one race is better than another. I'm just saying you find a huge amount of male chauvinism among certain non-white communities, which they don't talk about. They just don't talk about it. So what I find interesting is holding white people to a higher moral standard and other people get a pass. If people are actually equal, let's go with that. People are actually equal, whatever body they have, you know, human beings are human beings. Why not hold everyone to the same standard? Why be a thousand times infinitely more concerned with the small minority of black people who are criminally killed, let's say by, by evil police, and most of the police are not evil, and that, and that is evil and that, and that has to be stopped, but why care thousands of times more about those people and never talk about the overwhelming majority of black people who are victims of violence, the overwhelming majority of them, 90% who are killed by other black people. That, has, that doesn't mean we shouldn't stop police abuse. I'm not saying do this and don't do that. I'm not even saying don't sometimes focus on that. I'm just saying, do you really care about these people? Do you really care about these black people? If you have a child, or a mother or a father or a brother or a sister or just anyone you love, a wife or a husband. If you love someone, you always care about them. You always care about them. If someone abuses a person you love, you're not going to say, well, if the abuser belongs to this race, then I'll care about it. And if the abuser belongs to that race, I don't care about it. So what I want to see is an end to the hypocrisy and the virtue signaling. And yes, stop the injustice, absolutely stop it. But unless you do it in Krishna consciousness, you're just, all you're doing is trading this hatred for that hatred. That's all you're doing. Okay, now we won't hate this way, we'll hate that way. It's the battle of the hatreds. And I'm not even mentioning tons of statistics to prove this. I'm not making this stuff up, but um, so yes, so taking full part to me, I fight, I dedicated my life to fighting for the good of this planet, but I'm doing it through Krishna consciousness. And I think if we all get more serious about spreading this movement, we could really make a difference. What's the best way to identify that self-righteousness in ourselves and practically make sure we aren't falling victim to that sort of mentality? I would say the, the best way is really make sure that you sound like Prabhupada. When you're getting all upset and excited about the injustice in the world, just check yourself and see if, if you sound like Prabhupada. Do you sound like Krishna? And if you do, then you're on the right track. Sacrifice in the mode of goodness means you just do things for Krishna without selfish motives. So I'm all for justice. I grew up, you know, I mean, I was in Berkeley in the streets fighting for justice when I was 18 years old. I want justice. I don't want anyone abused. And if there's one particular problem, sure, we can focus on that, but not through hatred, not by being prejudiced against another group of people. And so anyway, I don't wanna keep saying this over and over and over again. All I'm saying is I think because I mentioned this because devotees because we are now a congregational movement and most of us don't live in Hare Christian temples. And it's very easy to get, you know, sucked into mundane thinking. So if all the devotees in the world 
who are really upset about injustice, if they all decided I'm gonna work three times as hard to spread Prabhupada's mission and suddenly if thousands of outraged, you know, politically outraged devotees suddenly rededicated their lives to educating the world and, and about how we're all equal. Equality is a very big topic in the Gita. Krishna talks a lot about equality. We have a lot to say about it. Krishna says, Pandita Samadarshana, the wise see everyone equally, all species, certainly all races. Krishna says, I am equal to everyone. Samohang Sarva Bhuteshu. Krishna says, Samak Sarveshu Bhuteshu, Madbhaktiing Labhate Pram. You can only achieve advanced bhakti when you are equal to everyone. It's everywhere in the Gita. Krishna says, Atmo Pamyena Sarvatra. Samang Pashati Jorjuna. Jorjuna, Sadyogi Paramamata. Krishna says, I understand, Krishna says, that the highest yogi is one who has universal empathy. Atmopam yena sarvatra. That means universal empathy. Who can identify literally with all living beings, certainly all races. To be a yogi in the Bhagavad Gita, you have to have universal empathy. We've got, we've got unlimited points to make. We have the solution. Bhagavad Gita is the solution to racism, not burning down the property of innocent people. Not like a, like a, a policeman in Las Vegas, some young guy with a family just doing his job, got shot in the head, paralyzed for life. For the rest of his life, he's completely paralyzed. Why? Because some racist shot him. So, you know, is that how you bring justice? By paralyzing innocent young people? By burning the property down of people who need their property? They have children to feed? They have families to take care of? And this is, this is what they have, and you burn down their property, and that's how you show you want justice. By killing innocent people, by injuring innocent people, that's how you show you want, no, I don't think so. And obviously most of the people that are demonstrating don't do that. I mean, to be fair, most of the people don't do that. But uh, anyway, I've said enough. I want justice. Krishna teaches me what justice is. And I'm trying to spread Christian's teachings. That's the way I, justice, without hatred, without bigotry, not a reverse racism, not a new kind of, you know, like, in, like combating bigotry with anti-bigotry, but Krishna consciousness. So thank you all very much. Uh, and uh, I hope you'll still come back next week after all these things I said. Uh, did I talk about seven? Yes, I did talk about seven. Okay, uh, Hare Krishna, and please, please uh, see if you can do a little more for Prabhupada to bring real justice to this world. Thank you all very much, Hare Krishna.